Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Josh, I uh, I think I'm over it. I think I'm over all of it. What? What are you What are you <laughs> all over, Santosh? <laughs> I can't do coronavirus anymore, Josh. It's just, you know, there's just, I don't want to talk about it anymore. All of the precautions are stuff that I've been telling people over and over to please do anyway for just like stopping getting the flu. But just because like this particular virus is circulating now, all of a sudden everyone's interested in washing their hands. I'm so, I I don't know. I'm just sad about it. Let me be the first to point out that it's totally okay to wash your hands when there's not a pandemic going on. (laughs) Please. But that's neither... But that's neither here nor there. And I promised I would stay on track tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have like totally different stuff to talk about. You know, not like, you know, going around the world and talking about health. You know who travels around the world, Santosh? (laughs) Uh, You do, actually, quite a bit. I do. I do. You know who else travels, although slightly shorter trips? Mosquitoes? No, no. Oh, the monarch butterfly. Good answer. But no. <laughs> Immigrants. Yeah. Oh, my next guest was going to be salmon. And that would have sounded really, really bad. <laughs> Mosquitoes, <laughs> monarchs, salmon, and immigrants all travel around the world. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, the subject of the actual thing today. Now, one of those things often gets a medical exam on arriving in their new country. Yeah, or in my case, where a lot of kids come in uh, through adoption, they actually get assessments before they ever get here. So it got me wondering, 
Is there a different set of rules or standards or that's used as a specialty in immigration medicine? Yeah, this is this is right up our alley, Josh. This is travel medicine. And there are two sides to travel medicine when you get certified into it. One side is telling people in your native country, so in our case, the United States, what to expect when you go overseas and how to protect yourself before you go. And then the flip side of it is how to take care of people who are coming from overseas to your country of origin, uh, you know, and, and take care of their health needs and their immunization and preventative care and everything, and kind of give them the best experience they possibly can as they enter a new country for whatever reason. And so with that in mind, this episode is going to be based on immigration medicine or what to protect when you're expecting people to come to your country. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I hope the people who make that book don't sue us because <laughs> I hear they, they, you they hope a... lots of people don't sue us. Well, yeah, I just, I'm tired of giving out your name and address every single time I get a phone call. Well then stop. <laughs> it's very frustrating. <laughs> That's Dr. Joshua Durant. So, folks. <laughs> Sorry. Go Let's go back into the annals of history, pop in the Wayback Machine, and talk about one of the most famous sites for immigrants in the U.S. of olden days. Oh, yeah, we can go all the way back because I think this is a, it's kind of often a sad or scary history of taking care of people in terms of if they're refugees or immigrants. But I think it can come around to a really hopeful story of you know, giving really good care to people who come to your shores in a respectful and open and inclusive manner. It's got a bit dark before it gets better. (laughs) Let's hop in the Wayback Machine, and I'll tell you, long before it became a way station for people looking for a new beginning, Mm -hmm. Ellis Island was named for Samuel Ellis, its last private owner, And it started its life as a place where condemned prisoners met their end, being used to hang convicted pirates, criminals, mutinous sailors. In fact, Ellis Island used to be called Gibbet Island, after the wooden post where the bodies of the deceased were displayed. Oh, dear. Now, the very last hanging was in 1839, and then it became a Navy munitions depot. And then it did a lot of nothing for a number of years, until around 1890 or so. And then it was repurposed as a federal immigration station. So let's talk about what that screening process would look like, right? We're picturing the Statue of Liberty, big boats full of immigrants coming, maybe fleeing a world war, or maybe just looking for a better life in the land where you can yank yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever the metaphor of the day was. Sure. Before even getting into New York, you'd have to be screened on the boats. So ships would initially be quarantined at the entrance to the lower bay before they could enter New York Harbor. Now, those in first and second class were inspected on board for evidence of contagious disease, uh, the diseases of the 1920s or the late early 1900s, like uh, cholera, plague, typhoid, measles, diphtheria, things like that. The fun stuff. Yeah. The stuff that we don't see anymore because we vaccinate. 
Now, anyone who did have these diseases would be sent on to Ellis Island for further medical screening or potentially just refused entry to the U.S. Of course, if you were in first or second class, they'd be more likely to just knock on the door and be like, pardon me, any life-threatening, contaminating diseases in there? And you could just say, (laughs) no, thank you, we're rich. And they'd say, good enough, and send you on to the U.S. Welcome. Bring your money with you. Yeah, because 18th century rich courtiers never carry syphilis. No, no, not at all. (laughs) No, thank you. No screening for us today. We're rich. Carry on to third class. Uh, Now, you don't necessarily want to just have open borders to people who are carrying infectious diseases. So between 1892 and 1924, and we'll talk about those dates a little bit more in a bit, the percentage of immigrants who was rejected for a medical condition including psychiatric, chronic diseases, infectious diseases, all of those summed up really only came up to less than 1%. Otherwise, welcome to the harbor. If you make enough money, you're passively healthy to be not considered a public charge or criminality risk, you're now part of the U.S. (laughs) I like that. Now that we've talked about first and second class, let's talk about all third class passengers plus anyone from first or second who had failed the original medical screening had to go through Ellis Island. It was not necessary, which I didn't realize. I didn't realize this was like the first stopping point. Like, no, 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 we need to screen you to rule out something wrong. I just thought it was you. This is where you get your passport stamped. It was the main port of entry in. Mm, No, no. So I learned some stuff today. Um, I'm glad. But all third class passengers had to go through Ellis Island, but a lot of hidden first class syphilis got into the country like this. <laughs> so we didn't have the kind of screening tools we use nowadays. So, Josh, you and I, as doctors right now, we can use serological screening, meaning that you can look for antibodies for syphilis, even if a patient is asymptomatic. And we often use this for screening in cases like pregnancy, or if you have a person who has frequent high-risk sexual or IV drug use behavior. But in that time, you couldn't tell. If you were asymptomatic, there was no way to know you had syphilis. And truth be told, a lot of these ships that were bringing people in to become new immigrants to the States really wanted them to be healthy. Because if you were refused entry into the U.S. for immigration, it then became the financial responsibility of the boat to pay for your fare back. So the shipping companies really (laughs) only wanted to bring healthy people. (laughs) All right. So there was actually a good amount of incentive for the the shipping companies, I hate calling them, they ship them over, but the, the transports, the there steamers, was the, the steamers. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't sound good either. The, <laughs> it, there's, there was a good amount of incentive to actually make sure that they were healthy before they even got on the ship on one side of the ocean. Yes. Cause the last yeah. thing you want is a bunch of sick people on a cruise Right. Nothing comes to mind in current events like that, but <laughs> there's there's absolutely nothing. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> so, we said about 1% of immigrants were refused, but how many immigrants actually were showing up? 
Well, between 1885 and 1920, about 21 million people arrived in America, and about 75% of them came through New York. The other 25% came through Angel Island or various ports of entry, and we'll touch very briefly on that near the end of the episode. Ellis Island only opened its doors in 1892, and when they were first opened, there were only six doctors stationed there to inspect the more than 200,000 immigrants who came through in that first year. Wow. That's that's a lot of patients for six Dude. doctors. <laughs> that's not okay. <laughs> but don't worry. There's... Don't worry, Santosh. By 1902, yeah. There were eight physicians examining um, the more than 500,000 arrivals. Fuck you. Oh, no, no, no. You're right. You're right. That doesn't sound like a lot. By 1905, 16 doctors examined the 900,000 immigrants who arrived that year. Would you please stop it? You're just torturing me for no good reason. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, just. They were fully all... staffed by 1916 yeah. When yeah. there were 25 doctors and four inspection lines running simultaneously. Uh, that's still a little, you know, kind of, you're, you're going a little like, what do you call it? Uh, like a conveyor belt type of thing. I, I'm not in love with it, but okay. Well, when you've got 25 docs and something like 2 million people a year. So what did that screening look like? Well, the very first health screening on arrival at Ellis Island was performed before you even entered, doctors would kind of wait at the top of the stairs of the second floor of this great hall and picture it, you know, benches lined everywhere, people from all sorts of corners of the world, every language you can imagine being spoken. And doctors would stand at the top of the stairs to the second floor watching from above as people had to haul their luggage and they'd be watching for any signs of weakness or heavy breathing, meaning you had to stop and put down the luggage frequently or... You know, you couldn't manage it on your own because these could be early, very rough signs of heart disease or pulmonary problems. This was basically the Ellis Island stress test. Um, nice. And additional physicians would watch for abnormalities in gait and posture. So your job would just be like, all right, guys, you're the heart disease doc. Look for anyone who's having trouble making it more than a few feet. You're the stroke doc. Look for anyone who's got a weird walk. You're the mental health doc. And they would just kind of look for people to pull aside, almost like a TSA kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a good idea to do a physical exam. And in fact, right now, when we talk about what goes on today, we'll talk about the fact that everyone coming into this country should have the benefit of having a thorough physical exam, but you can't do it like as they walk by. That's some nonsense. So oh, yeah. first you did the Ellis Island stress test where you just kind of watch people filing in and see who sure. needs to be pulled aside. They would also have to climb this flight of stairs. So, you know, that's part of the stress test anyway. Can you walk up a flight of stairs? Sure. Once at the top of the stairs, as they passed by these docks, immigrants with the very occasional help of an interpreter. Doctors. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. So at this point, you're like miming at the person and hoping that they get what you're saying. And doctors would then examine the hair, face, neck, and hands of every individual and mark them with chalk if needed for further inspection. You know, like produce. Okay. <laughs> 
I'm so sad about this right now. <laughs> face. The face was checked for symmetry. You know, things like facial droops or open sores, scars, anything that might indicate some kind of further disease screening. The neck mm -hmm. was checked for goiter. The hands, nails, and scalp were looked for were checked for ringworm or fungal infections. And those who couldn't speak English were checked for problems with mental acuity. Oh, just the ones who couldn't speak English. So about oh, God. two out of every 10 people who walked by this line of docks were marked with chalk. Mm. And this initial check became known as the six-second physicals. Oh, yeah, that's reassuring. So... You might be wondering, what kind of chalk markings were they making on these newcomers to the fledgling United States? Uh, sure. I mean, you, you're going to have people of European ancestry, by and large, right? So the first like groups of people who colonized, you know, 1776 and formed the country and everything. I'm putting it this way because there were prejudices in play, right? When they were trying to figure out who to screen and who not to screen. The prejudice came into play. If you were sent to the West Coast, to Angel mm -hmm. Island, right? you were much, much more prejudiced against than coming to Ellis Island. Ellis Island was prejudiced against the poor. Oh, interesting. That's it. There was gotcha. no real, no real racial thing. So okay. after you got your six-second physical, that's here better, were some I suppose. of <laughs> land of opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so your six-second physical might end with you getting a chalk mark for further inspection. So some of them, an X placed high up on the front of your right shoulder, meant you were insane or mentally deficient. An X uh -huh. on the lower level of the right shoulder meant that you had a known disease or deformity, maybe like a goiter or a club foot or something. Sure. And an X in a circle looks generally unwell. There's probably something going on there. We don't know quite what. We can't, <laughs> we can't tell you what's going on. Yeesh. Okay, all right. And then they had, so those were the general Xs, and then they had specific ones that they would mark for the area that needed to be examined. So CT for chlamydia trachoma, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Hold hold your horses. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, F for foot, G for goiter, H for hernia, F for face, L for lameness, SC oh. for scalp, P okay. for pulmonary. So like just a real quick idea to the doctors in the next room. Like, sure. look, here's how to do your focused exam because we only had six seconds to figure out. Of and course. in later years, doctors even began to devise puzzle and memory tests to ensure that certain immigrants were intelligent enough to find work. And this consisted uh -oh. of this consisted of cookie cutter shapes that the subject had to put in place correctly. Under the cube test, the examiner would touch four or five different cubes one after another in a definite order, and the uh -huh. subject would have to imitate the examiner touching the same cubes in the same order. So it was supposed to be a language-free test to make sure that you'd be able to take care of yourself and survive in the working because no one was coming with you. Nobody was setting you up with a job. Failure of some of these intelligence tests indicating that you were likely to be a public burden or charge usually resulted in debarment and deportation. Oh, okay. But this was not the scary test. This didn't come up till later on in the 1910s or so. The final medical exam, after you had walked up 
the stairs, gotten your six-second physical, been marked by chalk, and made it through any of the other ones, the yeah. final exam was the most terrifying. The okay. dreaded the dreaded I-Men of Ellis Island, also known as the Buttonhook Men. That is a great horror movie title. The I-Men well, of Ellis yeah, Island. That's, you know, this is, I mean, if we, you know, if you're back in that age, if you had like the internet or something like it, and you could tell people about this, then, you know, that just would creep me out. I don't know that I'd want to come. This is really creepy. So there's a couple poems that have been written about the button hook men. Mm -hmm. But what these were the final doctors you would see. They would inspect the eyelids and eyes for any, for any evidence of chlamydia trachoma. And mm -hmm. that's because in the days before antibiotics, the only treatments for this disease, for if chlamydia made it to your eyes, were surgery and corrosive chemicals, yep. and over 75% of the victims who had this were left blind. So screening definitely needed to be performed. Yeah. Okay. That really sucks, because if you just left them alone, they'd go blind anyway, poor things. The use of a button hook, which is a hook you would use to you know move buttons from like your shirt or your coats or your shoes at that time, to then lift somebody's eyelid. Or the use of unwashed index fingers was certainly less than hygienic. And oh. when Teddy Roosevelt visited in 1906, he wrote his Secretary of Commerce a stern note of concern over the fact that doctors made this examination of the eyes with dirty hands and not even a pretense of cleaning their instruments. And he was mad about it. So this disgusting practice quickly changed after the orders were given for frequent hand washing. The Go very first, figure. the very first employees must wash hands. Yeah, was for the doctors at Ellis Island, thanks to Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, way to go, Ted. See, there were a couple of Roosevelts that really, really helped public health, and Teddy and Franklin Delano, and I'm I'm grateful to both of them. They were great. So, would you be concerned about chlamydia in the eyes? So, if you have genital chlamydia, right? So, if there's a few categories with genital urinary chlamydia, you have people who are actively infectious and sick. There is another category of people who have silent infection, and that often happens with guys where they are shedding chlamydia bacteria, but they don't really have any symptoms to say. And that's why STI screening is really important. But once chlamydia gets into your eyes and okay, haha, before everybody gets all freaked out about what kind of sex are you having, the way that chlamydia gets into eyes is that babies are born through the vaginal canal. And if there's active chlamydial infection, it can get into the eyes and cause this horrible thing called a trachoma. It usually evidences as a person's growing up, and uh, it results in this horrible scarring over, over the cornea, and basically your eyes can fuse shut. And so up until recently, it was one of the most common causes of acquired blindness in the world because chlamydia is that prevalent, and we didn't have good screening in less developed countries. But the big thing is, Josh, once a person has chlamydia on the eyes, they're not really infectious from their eyes. <laughs> And they're not going to have an STI either. The, they're, they're scarred, man. They're hurt. 
And so, you know, they, they don't have active infection that they can pass on from person to person. And yet they were still barred from the U.S. if they showed up with it. The, the vast majority of, you know, when we look at chlamydia and we say, who gets trachomas? <laughs> we don't talk about rubbing chlamydia from your infected penis into your eye. That's the first <laughs> rule of chlamydia club. <laughs> Again, this is the most terrifying part of the exam because a hook is coming at your eye. You could be thrown out of the U.S. if you failed this exam. Not everyone was quite sure what they were looking for. And what you're saying is largely even the people they found it in were being thrown out for no good reason. So... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the trachoma forms when you're a little kid and then, you know, you clear the infection from your eye. So when a public health services medical officer formally diagnosed an immigrant with a disease or defect throwing his or her admissibility into the U.S. into question, mm -hmm. that person was then considered medically certified. And the law at that time required the public health service to issue a certificate to those who suffered from a loathsome or dangerous contagious disease. And all <laughs> those people were confined to the contagious disease hospital right next door, one island over. L loathsome? Loathsome. <laughs> What is this hate language? What's going on here? 1920s. <laughs> uh, which, after decades of neglect, has uh, recently been reopened to the public. So you can go tour the Contagious Disease Hospital oh, God. if you are in New York. And it's actually, it's a neat historical place to walk around and see these old-timey buildings. There's no photos or anything hanging anymore, but there's a couple of the old hospital beds and equipment still around. But each medically certified individual would then have to receive a hearing before a board of special inquiry where three officers would question the immigrant about his or her occupation, finances, and family residing in the United States. Now, the good news is in most instances, the BSI would overrule the medical certificate and did not reject the immigrant. Okay, you have this contagious disease, but it's certainly one we can treat if we keep you on loathsome disease island for, I don't know, a week or two. And then you can con come contribute to society. So most of these people, even if they were pulled aside originally, did get into the U.S. Yeah. Uh, slightly less good. Sick children who were 12 years old or older and failed a medical exam and the medical screening were then sent back by themselves to their home harbor. So it Aww. is in theory that parents could advance, whereas children would have to be sent back by themselves. Children under 12 years old that were not allowed to stay in the U.S. were then forced to be deported or to go back to their country of origin with one parent. And a lot of tears were shed when parents had to decide who should stay and what parent should go back with the sick child. That's that's heartbreaking. I hate that. So again, you know, we're, we've had a lot of discussions in, in the media about the terrible things going on at our various borders and immigration. And sadly, we've been doing this for years and years and years. Uh, so some of these practices are not necessarily new. They're just technologically updated. Yeah. People who were marked with this disease would basically be sorted into two different classes for their medical certification. Uh, class A, which was a contagious disease or a definite 
nope, you're probably getting deported. We can't afford to have this. Whereas class B became a little bit of, well, we don't want them because they're a less effective laborer and likely to be a public charge. Um, Here's the trick with that. If you had a class A condition, you could apply for treatment and be sent to Loathsome Disease Island, not its real name, (laughs) um, to then be treated and, and allowed in when you were deemed healthy enough. But most immigrants didn't apply for treatment of class A conditions because if the request was granted, the immigrant would then be required to pay all medical expenses of treatment. And those who did get treatment were then often deported for their inability to pay their hospital. So what you're saying is we've always had a problem with health care costs in this country, like from day goddamn one. Yeah, so you could show up and be like, oh, you have a disease, you can't come to the U.S., but it's a treatable disease. Oh, all right, then go through our screening. Uh, yes, we can treat this disease. Would you like to stay or would you like to come back when you're healed? Well, I'd like to stay. Wonderful. Here's your bill. I can't pay this. Well, off you go back to your home country. Job well done. Well, I mean, I guess it's sort of kind of a nice way for them to get treatment and then just go back. Sure. Medical (laughs) medical tourism in the early early 1900s. Sure. (laughs) I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating this. This, this really, really sucks. But see, I was hoping that we'd talk a little bit about, oh, you know, this is how we prevented disease from spreading into the United States. But this really, really just looks like an opportunity to just like, kind of pick on people. Now, there was a lot of important health screening performed. And by and large, the doctors were not the ones changing the requirements for admission to society. They would simply say, you know, clubfoot, chlamydia, tuberculosis, and leave the decisions of who gets in or didn't to other bureaucratic officials. But those officials started cherry picking immigrants. Uh, Now, After and assuming you passed the medical examination, you went to the registry room and interrogation, and there inspectors would verify just name, age, religion, any relatives or work waiting, and each inspector had about two minutes per immigrant to make sure the info on your card was correct to see if you could stay in the U.S. or if you were likely to become a public charge. This was such a short time that a lot of name spellings could be wrong or quickly changed. And if there were any problems, you had to remain on Ellis Island till they were resolved. So this was kind of like a brief holding period. So we didn't overwhelm the United States with too many new people all at once. Sure, Uh, sure. If this sounds horrible and exclusionary and racist, it was. Now, there were some positive health screenings that came from it. And like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saw what was going on and rapidly started implementing a few changes to make it a more health centered screening instead of a citizenship centered screening. And Ellis Island's role as a gateway really began to change in the early 1920s when a bunch of federal laws ended the open door immigration policy. So we actually became more restrictive and established quotas for the number of new arrivals. They did away with the health and public charge right from the beginning and just said, we're taking only this many people from this country, this from that many. And that's when you started getting the kind of country-specific preferences you were worried about in the beginning. Like, oh, can you have the Irish? Can you have the Italians? Can you have the Polish? Sure. By 1925, 
most of the inspection process had shifted from American ports to the U.S. consulate abroad, meaning if you wanted to come to the U.S., you had to go to the embassy in your country of origin, undergo the screening there, and then you could travel, which meant Ellis Island once again became a detention center and a deportation point for undesirables. Uh, this we led. So, we were doing like so, so okay. This led to a bunch of high-profile lawsuits that basically made a lot of Americans not too favorable to Ellis Island. And in November 1954, it was closed for good as part of a federal cost-saving measure and didn't reopen until the early 90s as a museum. Oh, okay. So 1885 to 1920, ton of medical poverty based exams that were mostly that were used to screen for health but were mostly used to kind of weed out anybody who was sick and or poor and from a country we didn't want sure well i i will say that there were semi good things that came out of this we were in an era where we were actually starting to understand epidemiology really well. Josh, before or around this time, we talked about our friend John Snow, mm-hmm. who actually, you know, who traced the nothing. source. The, the actual, the guy who figured out the source of a contamination at a, at a pump Oh, you're talking about the ghost epidemic hunter. Okay. Yes, exactly. So we were starting to learn how diseases spread and how they got around. And coupling that with things like germ theory and understanding how to do proper histories and physicals. So we did start to get really good documentation about what diseases we saw from what area, talking about things like disease rates, uh, where they would come from, the genders that you would see them in, the age ranges that you would see them in. So there was some very interesting information that came out of this data gathering. The problem was when you're gathering in this kind of piecemeal and cherry picking kind of way, then you're going to have a lot of false assumptions. So we learned a few things, but then later on we had to unlearn a whole bunch of things. So now that we know what some of the early census taking and data gathering for the NIH and CDC and immigration looked like, back in the early days of the U.S. immigration. Let's talk about immigration medicine today. Guidelines for people who want to come here have changed quite a bit from what they were back in Ellis Island. So even though it may not feel like it, we have made a lot of progress. Yeah, and we have everything from refugee guidelines to immigrant and refugee health and very proper, rigorous screening medical exams and technical instructions, you have to be certified as what's called a panel physician or a panel surgeon or a civil surgeon if you want to perform these kind of medical examinations. And not only do you go through technical training on how to do a proper history and physical and what tests to do and how to look things up properly, which is a big part of all this. But you also get a lot of really good training on social understanding and, you know, a a little bit of training on things like sympathy and empathy and cultural understanding. So it's actually a really 
stringent and good process that you can go through if you want to be part of the group of doctors here in the United States and abroad that uh, prepare people to immigrate to the United States from one route or another. So let's talk about what the guidelines are today if you're hoping to come to the United States and finally meet your favorite podcast hosts in their home (laughs) cities. Uh, Yeah. Whoever they may be. Sure. Yeah. So the guidelines for the medical screening of aliens seeking residency or temporary or permanent are set by Which the center. Still, I, I don't I don't love that. Are set by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Division of Global Migration and Quarantine, the DGMQ. Mm-hmm. There's going to be, by the way, a lot of acronyms getting thrown at you pretty soon here. I'll, I'll keep it brief as best I can. <laughs> um, so, report of medical exam and vaccination record is to ensure that an applicant is not inadmissible to the U.S. on public health grounds. So inadmissibility is defined in Act 212 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, (laughs) If somebody has a communicable disease of public health significance, lacks the required vaccines, is a drug abuser or addict, has a physical or mental disorder with a behavior or history of a behavior that is a threat to the property, safety, or welfare of the alien or others. Essentially, you're trying to see how safe they are in and of themselves to travel, come over, and travel with the other people who they're coming with. And the extra added layer, which adds complication to this, is which of those diseases that they might be carrying, which is a public health threat to people already living inside of the United States. Would coronavirus, for example, qualify as a disease of public health significance? So under this category A is actually public health emergencies of international concern. So that sounds really broad and vague because it's kind of supposed to be. Right now, COVID-19 does fall under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. The current communicable diseases included tuberculosis, uh-huh. Syphilis, right? Gonorrhea, mm-hmm. granuloma inguinal, uh, as an STI, correct? Lymphogranuloma venereum, another, oh, yeah, <laughs> another STI, another STI, yeah. <laughs> Hansen's disease, which is leprosy, mm-hmm. and <laughs> quarantinable diseases designated by any presidential executive order. Oh, yeah, that's kind of sad. There's there's a so, real vague gray no, area. There is. <laughs> and uh, maybe we shouldn't be giving that much power to people who aren't doctors. Uh, I'll, I'll give you guys a current list of what that includes. And when you hear it, you'll understand why these are quarantinable. They're all highly, highly infectious, easily transmissible, and in a lot of cases, extremely deadly. So cholera, diphtheria, infectious tuberculosis, meaning that they're not just latent carriers, they're actively sick, Uh, plague, Yersinia pestis, smallpox, yellow fever, Uh, viral hemorrhagic fevers, that includes Ebola and Lhasa, and then severe acute respiratory syndromes. Unfortunately, uh, the COVID falls under this one. And influenza, actually, just having the flu 
Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, like in ancient times, ancient times, in, in ye olden times, you just get thrown out. It means that you need to be kept away from other people and properly treated. Kind of like the worldwide work from home that is going on right now. <laughs> that is true. Now, an applicant with one of these diseases can still be admitted if it is under the quote-unquote national interest or if they are the spouse, natural or adopted child, father or mother of a U.S. citizen, an alien lawfully admitted for permanent residence, or an alien issued an immigrant visa. Which means if you already have your citizenship or you are tied to by, you know, or you're blood tied to somebody who does, you can get in even if you have one of these diseases. Yeah, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get into adoption, um, overseas adoption and international adoption. But we actually do have a standard waiver form for adoptees to come into this country with one of those Class A conditions. Now, in order to come in even with a Class A condition, you still have to meet the vaccination and examination requirements, and those are usually performed in your outgoing country of origin. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the vaccination requirement includes the following vaccinations, the MMR for measles, mumps, rubella, the tetanus and diphtheria, meningococcal disease, pneumococcal disease if you're of a more mature or elderly persuasion, haemophilus influenza type B, rotavirus, varicella, flu, hepatitis A and B, pertussis, and polio. These requirements are established by Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and even though certain segments of our population may not believe in them, <laughs> you do not get into this country without having all these vaccinations. Yeah, and the wonderful thing about science, as it is often said, is we don't need your belief in order for it to be true. Uh, this is one of the ways that we have not only kept our population here in the United States safe, but we know that we haven't brought immigrant populations into this country. Um, and by the way, all of you guys who are like, oh, immigrants are just flooding through our borders. Just take a little second here and think about how much we've already told you you have to go go through for health screening and vaccination before you are considered for immigration into this country. Um, after this point, it turns into a true physical exam and a history taking because in addition to the vaccines that we have listed here, you may have to go through further health screening vaccination or treatment for any of these conditions that we actually find positive. Part of the panel physician exam also includes specifically tests for tuberculosis and the blood tests for syphilis. Mm -hmm. And as we said, all immigrants have to have these physical exam and these vaccinations done before they come to the U.S. Now, foreign nationals pay for their own exam, but the cost of the exam for refugees is covered by the U.S. government. So they're still not flooding in. No. Um, and, and that's where you end up getting a lot of these refugee camps because you need a place to set up and do all this extensive health testing and screening before anyone can come in. And then our government foots the bill to make sure someone is healthy before we allow them access to our general population. Right. 
Along with all of this, there is screening for, as Josh said before, substance abuse. There's screening for mental disorders. And under our refugee laws, this really, really must be done on, with a translator who can understand the language of origin of the refugee as well as English or a, a compatible language here in the United States. It actually doesn't have to be English. And the, the understanding has to be reached by the refugee patient of everything that they're going to go through or need to go through to come into this country. We are not allowed to just do stuff to them. So as a, for instance, if they go through the screening and you find that they have latent or active tuberculosis, um, the the person and the family has to have a good understanding of we're going to treat you with this medication or we have to do these certain procedures like an x-ray in order to diagnose you. That's what it looks like if you are a intentional visitor or a refugee. Now, the kind of health conditions you'll have to deal with depending on where you start from are going to change country to country. But once you arrive, they stay largely the same. Now, Santosh, you brought up an interesting point. Some of our immigrants don't have the capability to speak, walk, or even have object permanence. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do for ad- what do you do for people who are adopted and emigrating? How does that change? Yeah, and uh, I'll actually uh, put in a link here for the CDC website for adoption because I thought it was absolutely amazing. We have a beautiful adoption flow that. Anybody can use both doctors and patients or parents in order to ensure that their kid is going to be well and healthy before they come over and well and healthy while they're growing up here in the United States. A lot of what we talked about already is going to happen when you're adopting. But in fact, what happens is that there's a screening process here in the United States before you even go overseas. So you're going to learn about the vaccine vaccine recommendations. You're going to get travel preparation before you go overseas, meaning that, for instance, if you need the yellow fever vaccine before you go to a country to adopt a child, you're, you're going to be given that. Um, or if you need something like malaria prophylaxis, then there is going to be an overseas medical exam, a review of vaccinations, screening for tuberculosis, and for certain populations, depending on the age group, uh, a blood test for syphilis. So that's all going to be done. Then depending on what they have, you may fill out that class A waiver. So as a, for instance, you know, this is a child with a mental disorder you know, who may be combative or abusive, but they're coming here to the United States in in order to actually receive mental health care. So you need to fill out one of these waivers and talk to a panel physician at the U.S. consulate. Um, Finally, you're going to make sure you hook up with a medical provider in the United States. We are going to screen as needed for HIV, syphilis, hepatitis A, B, C, Um, And then there's actually kind of a long list of intestinal parasites and extra intestinal parasites that we screen for, for overseas uh, children. And that really depends on where they're going to come from. The doctor 
who is going to receive the child and see the child when they first come over should be conversant with how to use resources like CDC Yellow Book so that they can actually chart and say, oh, these particular uh, intestinal helminths or worms are actually endemic to this part of the world, so we need to screen and treat for this, or we need to do certain blood tests for diseases like Chagas, uh, which are not in the intestines, but rather in the bloodstream or in the tissue. And this type of screening and then medical care, whether they need medications or surgery or any one of these things, this should proceed under the care of the designated um, medical provider. And all of this is kind of enveloped under CDC's International Adoption Goals, which has uh, uh, six bullet points. So ensuring adopted children receive proper medical screening overseas, provide information to parents, communicate with adoption organizations so that they have all the proper guidelines, encourage safe and healthy travel for parents going overseas, respond to disease outbreaks in the adopted children. Um, as a, for instance, if a child is currently being adopted from China and you want to know whether or not, you know, they, they have a chance of contracting or carrying um, the SARS-CoV variant virus. Um, and so then finally, to actually reach out with other countries and partners, because there are international guidelines in every single country that you can imagine for adoption. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that our guidelines and practices are optimized and we can learn a ton from these other international agencies and national agencies from other countries. But we can also communicate what we have learned and what the best practices are for those other countries where there are parents also adopting children from outside of their borders. We're also going to go through a few other things that are really typical for kids, but they're not too much different from what you would do for kids who are already here in the United States. So we would screen them for things like lead level and make sure that they don't have excess levels of lead that would affect them directly. That's not really a public health issue. That's really just for the child. Um, and then doing things like checking their complete blood counts to make sure that they're not anemic, um, checking things like liver function tests in case that we've missed, um, you know, either a congenital or an acquired uh, liver disease or um, find something, for instance, in their metabolic panel that could be uh, acted upon immediately as a, for instance, type 1 diabetes. So... This is kind of the background that we're standing against, and the public health efforts in this population for international adoptees has been absolutely wonderful. And the testing is imminently available to really everybody who needs it, and we have resources like the AAP Red Book, the CDC, um, both in their international adoption guidelines and in the yellow book. So really, I'm very happy to say that there's no reason that we should fail any of these children coming into the United States if we follow these guidelines well. Now, that covers pretty much all the immigration medicine updates. As I said very briefly, most immigrants came through Ellis Island. A lot of Asian immigrants ended up coming through the West Coast, Angel Island, closer to San Francisco. And if you thought the Ellis Island story was one rife with hidden racism and general judgment 
and poor societal conditions, well, it's cheery by comparison. Oh, dude, we were just getting happy. So we're not going to go... So we're not going to go into that, but Angel Island was shut down much earlier mm. and is actually a lovely park. That, so instead, <laughs> I'm going to leave you. This is one of these it's things. A, it's a lovely park. Yeah, yeah. This is one of these weird things like, you know, because we're strange here in the United States and we actually want to go to places like Alcatraz. Now, there's actually people who do walk around Angel Island and have no clue that it used to be a public health screening and detention facility for most Asian immigrants, but there you have it. So instead I will leave you with a, just the tip. Yeah. Uh, you can go and do a hard hat tour of Ellis Island. As I said, the Island opened again in 1990 for tourism. And on this particular tour, the hard hat tours, you get a 90 minute tour of the unrestored immigrant hospital buildings, which includes the infectious and contagious disease wards the kitchen, the mortuary, the autopsy room. And keep in mind, at its peak of operation in the early 19-teens and 20s, mm-hmm. this was the largest public health service facility in the U.S. So you can see what healthcare would have looked like while learning a lot of the history we've talked about today. And you'll also visit the laundry building, which has most of its original equipment still in place. <laughs> Yay! Um, <laughs> so, as I said, the, the takeaway is that we have, with some of the decisions the administration is making with a hardline approach to immigrants, are less than admirable. Mm-hmm. It is tragically nothing new in terms of how the U.S. has handled immigration screenings. But that said, we have continued to get better and better from those early days with the hope that we will continue to do so moving forward. Yeah. And. This is not, by the way, you know, I know we're bashing a little bit on our own, you know, because that's what we know is everything here in the United States. But this is not a unique problem to the United States, right? Everywhere we go, there's this question of, you know, we have sovereign borders. We already have problems within our own sovereign borders. How do we, A, make sure that um, you know, the people who live within our borders are safe and then B, take care of people who come within our borders in a just and caring manner. Because the truth of the matter is you want to be able to do both of those things well. And if you do, it takes a lot of time, money, resources and it also takes a lot of strict adherence to these kind of guidelines that we've put out. It's it's not one of these one and done easy peasy uh, you know, process. Lemon squeezy. Yeah, exactly. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes or via our Patreon. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And as always, until next time, happy travels. Bye, guys.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.